The Octarine Tree, a podcast exploring the meaning of ecology, spirit, and human relationship. From Southwestern Australia, I'm your host, Byron Joel. G'day, mob. Welcome back to the Octarine Tree podcast. I believe this is episode six The Secrets of Sahul. This podcast is a continuation of the series that I uh, did last year on the relict hominoid hypotheses hypothesis so for those who aren't familiar I'm one of my keen very passionate albeit amateur interests is in paleoanthropology in general the evolution of our species homo sapiens um, and all of our closest relatives the hominids and hominins and the increasingly rich story that is being told as studies continue and archaeological and fossil paleoanthropological fossil finds and indeed genetics continue to offer us more and more data and information the story just becomes increasingly fascinating and rich and uh, I, I am I'm enthralled by the whole thing and I can actually sense that this as a story is bubbling to the surface of the collective human mind at the moment there is a increasing interest in Pleistocene studies in general but just also the stud the study or the story of us who we who we are who we were before we were domesticated um, and as I actually explore in another little video entitled sapiens life amongst extra sapien hominids or something to that effect on the YouTube channel I actually explore the cultural and psychological implications of what it would be like to live in a world where there were numerous human species coexisting um, in different regions around the world to me that is absolutely fascinating um, I'll probably do a, a dedicated octarine tree episode to that subject alone but for now if anyone's interested in that um, head to the octarine tree youtube channel and, and check out the playlist on crypto hominology on top of the more conventional paleoanthropological studies i'm also incredibly interested in the law surrounding what's known as sasquatch yowie yeti these large hairy human-like creatures who have been seen all around the world for a very very long time in all different cultures i can't say that i actually believe with a capital b that they exist as flesh and blood organisms i have some very 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 strong suspicions but just out of a position of intellectual honesty no i can't say i believe in it in saying that though all i do really believe is that something is occurring and something is perceiving something occurring but that's kind of digressing for now. And I'm fully aware of how nuts it may sound to some people. The idea that these, these, this phenomena of the Yowie Sasquatch has something real to it, that it, it, there is a possibility that this is real in terms of a flesh and blood hominid organism running around out there in the wilderness somewhere. I'm well aware of how insane that sounds. However, the subject offers sufficient evidence and strangeness in both quantity and quality to warrant a further investigation whatever it turns out that this phenomena is this greater relict hominid or you know sasquatch yeti whatever you want to call it phenomena it is very very strange it is pertinent it is across the globe it's global and it spans across various cultural forms in whatever place it is described. There is something really interesting and strange going on. Those who caught my discussion, I think it was episode two with Dr. Jeff Meldrum, will remember me asking the question, is it scientifically plausible that an extra sapiens hominid species, that is to say, one of, our, one of Homo sapiens close relatives, but not Homo sapiens, managed to cross the Wallace line and arrive on the Australian mainland at any point, but probably before the arrival of Homo sapiens. That's what this following talk that I gave focuses on. That is the very premise of, of the whole discussion. 
So it was the second of three talks that I've done at the uh, Theosophical Society in Perth. I should note as well that there is a link in the description to the YouTube video associated with this audio that has really good graphics in it, really good slides. So the audio will stand alone, I believe, but by all means, if you are interested and you have um, the ability to, then I suggest watching this on the YouTube channel as well, link in the description. I think that's all for now. Thanks again for joining us. All the best. Hooray for everything. We're on. How'd you do? I was here about eight months ago, six, eight months, something in that neck of the woods. And I did a talk on that was called Relic Hominids, an introduction to Relic Hominids, and it explained the idea that th these mysterious, large, sometimes small, hairy, human-like creatures that are so often reported being seen around the world may perhaps be relict populations of different species of hominids, which are human family relatives, very close relatives, that may have been may have held on around the world in different places. Uh, that was received pretty well and I was asked to come back, so I, here I am. And this chat is indeed called The Secrets of Sahul. So Sahul, I'm going to be referring to Sahul a lot. So in geology and geography, there are different names given to continents at different geological periods throughout history and indeed seas and oceans, in fact, have different names. Sahul is the name given to the Australian continent before the last ice age ended and the sea levels rose about 70 odd metres inundating the coastal plains. And of course back then you could, there was this great Carpentarian plain here in between Papua New Guinea and Australia. Can you imagine what that would have been like? Ice age earth, it was freezing at the poles, the, the poles were however many kilometres or minutes latitude further toward the equator, but it was nice and cosy along the equator, and you've got this big, nice tro tropical, subtropical plain here. It would have been incredibly verdant as far as Australia goes anyway, but that all got inundated. Um, so that's the Sahul on the Sahulian plate, and next door is Sunda, just like Australia, in fact, around the world, if the sea level goes up, the sea level goes up. It doesn't matter where you are, it's all sea level. So Sunda was also inundated. Sunda, the neighbouring plate to Sahul. And what was a continent-sized uninterrupted landmass became what we know as Southeast Asia today, which is an archipelago dotted and pocketed with seas and islands and isles. And these two have never met. There has always been open water between the two, and that becomes important later. So just a little catch-up on our paleoanthropology. So according to the conventional um, ideas, humans left Africa in one migratory wave approximately 70,000 years ago. That's been the going consensus since like the 70s after the Leakies did all their work in the Olduvai Gorge and whatnot. Before that, it was considered that uh, humanity, modern man, actually evolved in Asia. But now it's a consensus that it's out of Africa and that it was around 70,000 years ago, modern humans left Africa and then spread out everywhere else. There are some different theories, this one being the multi-regional hypothesis. Multi-regional evolution hypothesis states that modern Homo sapiens evolved as separate lineages derived from separate populations of more archaic species like Homo erectus. So in this theory, Homo erectus or some other predecessing species left Africa or wherever it was from, spread out around the old world, and from there, in multi-different regions, they evolved separately into modern humans. Here we have modern Africans from archaic Africans, modern Asians from archaic Asians, da-da-da-da, and so forth. In my humble opinion, and I should, this is probably a good time to throw a disclaimer out there that I'm not an anthropologist or paleoanthropologist by training, and this is all just one man's humble opinion. Uh, it looks like it's a bit of both, actually. It's not quite that we just left in one big wave 70, 80, 90,000 years ago, and it's not just this multi-regional 
hypothesis thing. There's a bit of both. All sorts of strange stuff occurred. It's a very, very exciting time in paleoanthropology at the moment. There is incredible discoveries happening every few months, it seems, at this stage. But we're going to focus on archaic hominids of Asia. Asia, Southeast Asia, Indo, Melanesia, Indonesia, and Australia. And there was a few of them, a fair few of them. So we'll start with Homo erectus. Anyone heard of Homo erectus? Homo erectus is considered to be the, the ancestor of modern Homo sapiens. They do think there was a species, depending on how you define species, in between called Homo heidelbergensis. And, and it's claimed that Heidelbergensis split into Homo sapiens in Africa that then moved into the Middle East, and Heidelbergensis split into Neanderthal in Europe and the Denisovans in Eastern Europe. But Homo erectus, uh, pretty archaic hominid human form, closely related to us. If we found the genetics of them, they would likely be 99.5% identical to us. Uh, they got as far as Java, seen here, a million years ago. That's a bloody long time in terms of you know, the story of the human family tree. You know, we left Africa 70,000 years ago, if you buy that story, which is having holes poked in it. Australian, indigenous Australians got to Australia, if you buy the conventional story again, 50,000 years ago, we'll go into that more later, but a million years ago, there was a human species, very closely related to us, in Java, just next door to Australia. There was also Homo erectus in China, it should add, like, Homo erectus was the first global human species. Not global in that we think it got to the New World, the Americas, but this guy spread from Africa, Western Europe, all throughout Asia to the very edges of Eastern Asia. There are Homo erectus fossils from Dimenesi in Georgia, in the Caucasus region, that are, like, pardon me, they're 1.5 million years old, but there's five different skulls, and they're all very, very different. Like this guy got around, he went all over the place. Very, very successful. Archaic hominids in Asia, Neanderthals in Mongolia. Most folks have heard of the Neanderthals. So once upon a time, it was believed that Neanderthals were actually our immediate predecessor, they, that we Homo sapiens evolved from them. And that's not the case. They are a, a sister clade, as it's called, like a sister species to Homo sapiens. Very, very similar genetically very, very similar to look at superficially, but actually some incredible differences. They're about a, a foot, half a foot to a foot shorter on average, stockier, like incredibly stocky, because they were the Ice Age inhabitants of this band here. This temperate band, or close to temperate band in the Ice Age world, as temperate as you're gonna get, they occupied that through Ice Age Europe. So they were designed, their morphology was designed for Ice Age living. So stocky, big bones, very wide, the huge lung capacity, very, very big, broad, flat nose to warm air up as they breathe in through their nose. It was originally thought that they were European. They were the European species, but they've been found all through Asia, East Asia now. In fact, their largest genetic variation is across the, in East Asia. So it looks like their homeland was actually kind of Central Asia. That's where they're from. And that the European populations, being less genetically diverse, were like a later, later movement. And in fact, I remember hearing that Neanderthals are actually... There is more diversity within the Neanderthal genome than there is within the sapiens genome. So you think of like the difference between two of the most different, two, three of the most different ethnic groups within Homo sapiens, like a, a Congonese pygmy tribe and then a Nordic Viking and, and then a South American indigenous population. Really, really different, right? in size, at least superficially, size, skin tone, facial features, skull shape, etc. There was more diversity within the Neanderthal species than there was within the human species. So there were, this wasn't just kind of like one blip, different species. There was a huge culture of these, these species, all different types. They presumed to have died out about 40,000 years ago. So they were living in Eurasia when Homo sapiens broke out of Africa 
into the Middle East. And then when the ice age, ice receded enough and sapiens pushed into Europe and indeed Asia, there was a lot of contact between them. And uh, eventually the Neanderthals died out, but they left a little bit of their genetics within us. It's interesting to point out as well that for two species who are so similar and they lived alongside each other, sapiens and Neanderthals, in Western Europe at least, for 10, 20, 25,000 years, there was very, very, very little interbreeding. There was some, but it was very, very small, given the fact that there were tens of thousands of years of being in the same regions. And what it looks like is that the Neanderthals are actually they were designed for a very, very different terrain, a different biome. So sapiens were the pack-hunting, you know, savanna, plains hunters, shooting, you know, from a distance. And the Neanderthals were in the forests and up in the mountains and the foothills. The tougher, they were tougher and rougher. Arguably, they're more nocturnal. They have very, very big ocular cavities. Very, very interesting. That, that dance and to be a fly on the wall to have been able to perceive that relationship between the two would have been fascinating. The hobbits or floras, has anyone heard of these guys? Yeah. It was a while ago now. And I think it's like the early, mid, mid 2000s. They discovered the skeletons of the Homo floresiensis, which are these diminutive, small, three foot tall human species on the island of Flores next door to Bali. Um, at first, it was thought that it was like a pathology or that there was, they had made some mistake or you know, that there was only just going to be one individual and it was a, some sort of skeletal pathology. But then they found a whole suite of them and realised, no, it is in fact an entire, entirely different species. Now, these guys, right next door to Australia. In fact, Flores is an Australian island. In terms of nation-states... It's an Indonesian island, but in terms of geography, it's an Australian island. Now, these guys, when, when they finally accepted the fact that it was actually a different species, there was a lot of argument over what they were, because this just blew people's minds when this thing was discovered. They were like, any anthropologist worth their salt had to go back and actually admit that stories, the folklore of little people, and indeed perhaps giants, had a, potentially had a whole lot more you know, viability than they had given the credit for in the past. They weren't sure what they were. They assumed that it was a, a population of Homo erectus had somehow found themselves isolated on an island and had dwarfed in response, which is quite often the case. But with cladistic studies, they now recognise that the morphology of these guys is less like Homo erectus and more like an even more archaic species called Homo habilis which is going back like three million years in Africa, which is very, very strange. And even, perhaps even further back, perhaps even more morphological relationship with an even older genus called the Australopithecines, which are like even further back, even more archaic, primitive, quote unquote, from Africa. But there's, there's no sign of any kind of intermediate species in, in time, because they're separated by millions of years, and tens of thousands of kilometres between Africa and Indonesia. So it poses quite an issue to conventional paleoanthropology. If you've got this species that resembles something far more archaic from the other side of the planet, what's it doing in Indonesia, especially on the Australian side of the Wallace Line, which we'll come to discuss? Gigantopithecus the largest species of primate ever described. So this species, there's actually three species within the genus Gigantopithecus, which means giant ape. They're only known from like teeth and fragments of the mandible jaw, but you can actually extrapolate quite a lot about a species just from its jaw, you know, because you've got teeth, which tell you an awful lot about its diet, but you can also, you can also extrapolate the way the jaw sat and whether or not it was bipedal or quadrupedal, etc. So these guys were huge, like a, a potentially three metre tall ape. Not sure if it was bipedal or quadrupedal. 
Um, and it's been suggested that it's part of the pong pongoid group. Pongoid, like pongos, the genus of orangutans. I'm not sure how they got that unfortunate genus name. The Red Deer Cave people. Uh, another pretty relative recent find. They don't know what it is. They're not, not sure if they should call it a, a different species or not. They've kind of like filed it in the too hard basket and they're leaving it aside for the time being. But it's the most recent known prehistoric archaic population. So its morphological features are far more archaic than they should be given how young they are. They're around 10 to 15,000 years old. There is a mosaic of archaic features and modern features and they've suggested it might be a hybrid. It might be a hybrid with the Denisovans or Erectus and Sapiens or some other unknown species to date. Oh, and uh, the, their femur was found painted in red ochre, which suggests symbolic activity, which is very interesting as well. And you see like the, the cheekbones, how pronounced they are. They're really unusual looking. Recently, uh, DNA, Genetics has become so incredible that the whole story is being rewritten, but unfortunately I don't think these guys, they couldn't yield any DNA from their bones. Same with Floresiensis, it would be incredible to get DNA from them. But in the tropics especially, those conditions, they don't lend themselves well to DNA extraction because it's so hot and moist and the breakdown is so swift and acute and thorough. Now this guy's really interesting. This only happened a month ago. In fact, between me actually starting this PowerPoint presentation and now I've had to do some editing because they've discovered this whole new species. Up here in Luzon, so that is now modern day Philippines, the island of Luzon, which note, here, here you have a, the map of modern day land and superimposed over it the old Sahul plate but note that the Philippines was still always separated from the old world. And, but this is another diminutive species. They've only found some finger bones and some teeth, but from that they can tell that it was another small, probably three foot tall species with really archaic features. And interestingly from the fingers, the fingers are, have curved bones, which is a very archaic feature in hominids and suggests that they were tree climbers. They were at least partially arboreal. So the further back in time you go along the human family tree, you have these, amongst many other features, curved finger bones, curved phalanges, which in indicates the gripping onto uh, branches. So here you have this brand new, to science, another species of diminutive hominid. Imagine seeing a little three foot tall, hairy bloke climbing a tree. Like it's just fascinating to imagine actually seeing these things. The discovery of stone tools documented that hominins were present on Luzon since more than 700,000 years ago. This species, I think was 60,000 years ago, but there's evidence of human occupation on that island 700,000 years ago. They're not sure who, they're not sure if it was Homo erectus or this particular species or another, but it goes back that far. That would predate the supposed origin of Homo sapiens and thus suggests an origin from a more archaic hominin form. This is also indicated by the anatomical character analysis of the Homo luzonensis fossil, fossils, which revealed similarities of several tooth characters and the curved shape of the toe with an ape-like genus Australopithecus rather than the human genus Homo. Homo denisovensis, has anyone heard of the Denisovans? Yeah, so this is really fascinating. So uh, I think it was about 10 years ago now, they were doing excavations in a cave in Siberia, Denisovan cave, and there's, there's evidence of sapiens and there's evidence of Neanderthals, and you couldn't write it. <laughs> they found one little pinky bone of the pinky finger and a tooth, and they were like, it's Neanderthal and they happened to go and test it, and the DNA that it yielded found that it was a completely new species of human that they had never even guessed existed. Not sapiens, not Neanderthal, not Homo erectus, something completely different. A sister species to the Neanderthals, in fact.
We still know very, very little about them morphologically, except for this little finger and a tooth, but the tooth happened to be about a third of the size bigger than sapiens. So we know these guys were big. And Neanderthals were big, but they were kind of like big, stretched on the horizontal, right? Here is a suggestion of what they would have looked like in terms of comparative size, but in terms of morphology, like facial features and da-da-da-da, no idea. Until, again, like I had to make this edit, like three weeks ago, they found a jawbone of a Denisovan in the Tibetan plateau. And there's also some very, very interesting genetic relations which we'll go into. I just threw this in. It's kind of got, doesn't have a whole lot to do with this particular talk, but it dawned on me a little while ago. You've got all of these different species of hominids living contemporaneously with one another. Like, you imagine it, like different species living in the same region and sometimes sharing very, very close environments, but just occupying different niches. And you throw into the mix all of the megafauna species that are now extinct. You know, the woolly rhinos and the mammoths and the cave lion and the whatever else you've got. And then this high appreciation for ritual magic and, you know, just a, a magical mindset. This Ice Age Earth would have resembled like a Tolkien novel. And, and that was an actual reality that existed on this planet. How it looked exactly and how it unfolded on a day-to-day -day basis, God knows it's stuff for like fantasy science fiction writers, but I find that fascinating that that was actually real. And can you imagine what that's like? I mentioned this last, the last talk I did, I made the point that nowadays we're, we're a lonely species. We don't want to know what it's like to have close brethren in terms of a bi another biological species here. There are different sapiens, cultures and creeds and ethnicities and whatnot, but can you imagine what it would actually be like to occupy a world with different, truly different races, different species of intelligent, anthropomorphic, hominid species? It'd be very, very unusual. It'd really change the relationship that we would have to ourselves and our sense of other and our ability to navigate differences and similarities. The Wallace line, it's a very important boundary in ecology. Wallace was a... Um, a contemporary of Darwin, and they more or less came up with the theory of uh, evolution simultaneously. There's a whole race to who could get it out at first. That's a whole different discussion. But it refers to a delineation between Australasian and Southeast Asian ecology. So remember, the Sahul Plate has been heading north since it split from Gondwana 40 million years ago, completely isolated. So all of the species of plant and animal on the Australian continent, Sahul, call it what you will, have been evolving in isolation for 40 million years. And because it was very, very harsh, and it's the oldest landmass on the planet, and it's had very little volcanic activity or glaciation in recent or even not so recent history, the soils are very, very poor. So it's the oldest, the flattest, the driest continent on the planet. As a result of the ecology being so different, the climate, the geology and the hydrology, the water being very different here as well, the ecology, the biology is very different. So we have these marsupials who are super tough and the, and the eucalypts and whatnot. So it's been drifting north for 40,000, 40 million years, and it's bumping into Southeast Asia now, the Sunda Plate. They've never touched. There's always been this body of water between the two. And so on the Asian side to the northwest, you have old world species, Asian species. You've got your macro predators like tigers and leopard, once upon a time all the way down to Java and, and Bali. Then you've got, you know, your rhino, pygmy hippos, you've got monkeys and those kind of things. On the Australian side, it's all marsupial and, and monotremes, you know. Even in Papua New Guinea, you know, they're all tree kangaroos and echidnas and, and those kind of things up there. There is this area in the guts here that's referred to as Wallacea. You get a little bit of bleeding back and forth, but it's usually with birds, bats, insects, that kind of thing. There are three species of, we'll call them megafauna, 
I'm not sure if a couple of them technically land in that category, but big enough animals, mammals, that managed to cross the Wallace line. One of them was a pygmy elephant species called the Stegodon, which made it onto Flores. The other two were Homo floresiensis and Homo luzonensis. So that's very, very interesting because the only way you can cross the Wallace line is across deep channeled water. That's another point that's worth mentioning. It's not just water, it's continental divide. It's quite deep channels, deep and fast flowing water. So it's not necessarily just a case of falling onto a log and finding yourself drifting across the pond to some lovely inhabitable land. This is the Wallace line, it's hard to see, but that little strait there between Java and Bali has never been connected. But you've got on this side, you've got Homo erectus a million years ago. And then on, so yeah, on the Sunda side, you've got Homo erectus a million years ago. And then you've got Homo floresiensis over here dated to at least 50,000 years ago. And then you've got the division between Timor and Australia or the Sahul coast back then, which is only 250 kilometers. Up here, technically Luzon, Luzonensis didn't cross the Wallace line per se, but again, Luzonensis had to cross a body of water to get where it went. So it's a real mystery how they did it, and it opens up a lot of questions. It suggests potential answers and mysteries as to who or what actually managed to cross that meagre little 250 metres of water and when, because you've got Homo erectus here a million years ago. I'll leave that to marinate. Hybridization, a quick little bit on uh, human hybridization. So all humans, all human ethnicities existing on the planet, except those from sub-Saharan Africa, have an admixture of Neanderthal DNA, somewhere from one, two, three, four percent. So when Homo sapiens left Africa and moved through the Middle East, Europe, Asia, Australia, America, however that route looked, Along the way, there was some interbreeding with Neanderthals. Not a great deal, but enough that most people in this room would have a little bit of an admixture in, in their blood. Also, human populations in sub-Saharan Africa had a hybridizing event with another unidentified ghost species approximately 30,000 years before present. So a ghost species is a species that we are aware of because of the genetic fingerprint in our DNA, but to which we don't, we don't know what to attribute that to in terms of the fossil record. It may be in the fossil record, it may be one of the many different species of hominid that we actually have catalogued and described from the fossil record. It may be something completely different. So sub-Saharan Africans had an event or a series of events, a period with a whole different species that we're not aware of. There's also been fossil remains of an F1 hybrid between Denisovan and Neanderthals found in Siberia. Literally, I think it was a young girl, her partial skeleton was discovered in Siberia, F1 meaning first generation. So her mother was Neanderthal and her father was Denisovan, which is I mean, that's an incredibly lucky find. That's one of those amazing find, recent finds in paleoanthropology. That's like winning the lottery. That's very unusual to discover. But it's direct evidence that these things occurred. This kind of stuff is just blowing the minds of field researchers at the moment. Like, it's have, paleoanthropology has had a number of old, what were thought pretty concrete ideas really shaken up recently, and it's just getting stranger and stranger. Um, this is a, what's called a braided stream or a braided river for obvious reasons because of the pattern. There are a number of different flows flowing in and out of each other, joining, leaving. That's a better example of what human evolution looks like in terms of the hybridization or the integration is a more accurate term of different hominid species. Instead of this just one in front of the other, single line ascent of man, quote unquote. It really is this neandering back and forth crossing of, of genetics and populations. Not always a hybridization. So like one population may have had a little, a taste of another one as they crossed a certain region or, or so forth, like, like the Neanderthal DNA in the human genome. 
Okay, the Denisovan story gets even juicier because just as all humans from above Sahara in Africa have X amount of Neanderthal DNA, on top of that, peoples from Melanesia and like Australasia, Australian Aboriginals, Papua New Guineans, some of the like Andaman Islands, um, Melanesian Islands, they have an extra up to 4% Denisovan DNA. A whole different species, again, thrown in there. It's fascinating. The highest rate, I believe, are the Papuans, nearly 4%. And then the Australian Aboriginals and the Andaman Islanders after that. And then East Asians in general have around 1%. There's evidence to suggest that there are a couple of different integration events, hybridization events throughout ancient history. That points to something potentially very interesting. The highest rate of Denisovan DNA extant within Homo sapiens is in Sahul, on the southeastern side of the Wallace line. So that's either there was a big integration or hybridization event or events in the old world, somewhere in Asia, and then resulting populations moved into Australia, Sahul, or potentially Sahul was the homeland of the Denisovans to start with. Yeah, there well there was a catastrophic catastrophic event, which reminds me, I was meant to put that in this bloody presentation, <laughs> I forgot. Uh, Toba, Mount Toba in Indonesia erupted about seventy thousand years ago. And it was the largest, the most violent eruption in relatively modern geological history. And it was, you know, like a nuclear winter for a number of seasons. The weather was affected and the light was affected. And the populations in that area bottlenecked. If this is getting the juices flowing like I hope it is, and you're coming to some of the questions that I hope you're coming to, um, there's a really interesting theory called the Out of Australia Theory. There's a bloke called Bruce Fenton online. He's very, very interesting, very clever guy. And he lays out a whole chronology of how potentially modern Homo sapiens evolved in East Asia and then spread out from there. Or even not just East Asia, Southeast Asia or even Australia. And spread out from there following the Lake Toba incident as to where they come from, the Denisovans, or what was their homeland, we're not entirely sure. This is a bracelet that was found in the Denisovan cave and has been attributed to the Denisovans. Now, I can't actually remember why they suggested this was Denisovan and not Sapien, but they attribute it to the Denisovans. And it's this bracelet made of this beautiful translucent green stone. And it has this hole drilled in it. So that suggests, you know, high technology, given the era. And they dated it somewhere like 50,000 years old. So if you know anything about your conventional, the conventional story of human evolution and what we were capable of, that, again, that just blows it out of the water. Very, very interesting indeed. Was there a high culture creating all sorts of things that we think couldn't have been created at a certain time? Bracelets megalithic architecture, what have you. And the really curious, interesting question is, was it sapiens building those things? Maybe the, these lost chapters and lost periods in human history that we often hear alluded to through so many kind of esoteric channels and studies, perhaps it wasn't actually us doing it. Just a question. Crypto hominids in Asia. I thought I'd throw this in there. So, Apart from the legitimised paleoanthropological studies, like I've just been mentioning, there is also the subject of these hairy, human-like creatures running around in the woods. That's what, that was the topic of my last discussion. I went into it in some detail. To go over again, these stories are almost ubiquitous around the planet, with the exception of Antarctica. They're just about everywhere. I find that intriguing. These stories go back from traditional like indigenous mythology, quote unquote, through colonial era and into contemporary times. So some of the crypto hominids in Asia are described as the rock ape in Vietnam, 
there's some really, really interesting accounts online of the rock apes where GIs were, every now and again, they're out in the middle of the forest and they'd be woken up at night by these terrible noises and commotions and they'd turn the floodlights on and there were these five foot tall, rusty red coloured apes, bipedal, running around making a big ruckus and threatening displays and whatnot. There's three, four very, very interesting accounts. The Hibagon in Japan, the Yeti in the Himalayas, most people have heard, at least heard the name, the Yeti. The Yeren in China, Yowie in Australia, the Jinjari in Australia. There's many different names for these even in, diff- in one place, but the Yawis are the big ones here, and the Jinjari are the little guys, little kind of three-foot-tall hairy chaps. The Ibugogo in Flores, the Oran Pendek in Java, the Kayadi in Papua New Guinea, Mamolu in the Solomon Islands, and the Mayoro in New Zealand. The Ibugogo of Flores is very interesting because the Homo floresiensis, you know, the documented skeletal remains of, you know, 12 different individuals, of three-foot-tall human species extant until about 50,000 years ago. At first, they thought that those fossils were about 11,000 years old, which really blew everyone's mind because that's geologically recent. But they now think it was a bit older, 40, 50,000 years. But forever, the locals of Flores have been talking about the Ibugogo, which is a strange name, but it roughly translates to like the ancestor, the female ancestor with a huge appetite, the grandmother who eats everything. And they describe these little hairy humans, similar but different, that live up in the hills. And at the time of the Portuguese arriving there, they were still there. And they claim that it was three generations ago now was the last time anyone on the island actually remembers seeing them. And there's a story that the Ibugogo came down from the hills and took off with a human infant, stole a baby, which is interesting because all around the world, the stories of little people, there's always this strange connection with children and children snatching. These Ibugogo took off up the hills and the people of the villages, they'd had enough. So they went after them, they ran up the hills. And I'm not sure if they got the baby back or not, but the Ibugogo ran into the cave and the, the villagers stuffed loads of hay dry straw into the cave and smoked them to death. And that was the last anyone's ever seen of them. But that's, I mean, that's modern. And for that to be coincidental, I find very unlikely. Unless, of course, that it's a case of something that did occur generations and generations ago, bleeding through into contemporary mythology and storytelling. But it's the same with the the Oran Pendek in Java, just across the water there, exactly the same. Small hairy, human-like creature. Except the Ibugogo, I believe, is, is, they say it has brown to black fur and the Oran Pendek is red, like a uh, orangutan. So quick, back onto Australia quickly. The earliest conclusive human remains are from Lake Mungo, dated to around 50,000 years ago. That's conclusive remains. There's a few things pushing that envelope back we'll go into. Recent archaeological analysis of charcoal and artefacts suggest as early as 65,000 years. Genetic research has inferred a date of habitation as early as 80,000 years. And then we've got this site, Mojil, in Victoria, a team led by John Sherwood at Deakin University. They found shell middens. So shell middens are the the remains of a, a feast on oysters and shellfish that have been piled up over you know, a few generations, and they decay in a very specific way, at a very specific rate, and they've been dated at around 120,000 years. But there's been no tools found around there. This is a really interesting one to watch, because if there was Homo sapiens in Australia 120,000 years ago, it throws the out-of-Africa theory into a fair bit of turmoil. doesn't necessarily rule it out, but they're going to have to rethink all of the chronology involved. But there is, of course, the potential that it wasn't sapiens, that there were other hominids here. And these are some of the extreme skulls that have been found on the Australian continent. So up the top there, Peking Man, I've put there just for reference, that was Homo erectus in Peking, China, dated at 700,000 years ago. That was just there so you could have an idea of the archaic features. But Mungo Man, top right, 50,000 years before present, the oldest conclusive remains of sapiens on the Australian continent. 
cow swamp, so the two middle ones, there's this whole suite of skeletons that were found at cow swamp in New South Wales with really bizarre morphology, some with really archaic features and others with extended craniums. I think they've been conclusively attributed to skull deformation, cranial deformation, where they actually bind the heads of infants with planks. So that occurs, right? But there are also skulls around the world of humans with very, very long skulls that aren't the result of deformation. The cow swamp skeletons, I think they range over a fair few thousand years. It's a big burial site. And they've all been repatriated, yeah, buried again. So there, there wasn't a whole lot of study done on them. There was some, but not as much as could have been done. And these two down the bottom are very, very unusual. Pintubi one skull, bottom left. You can recognise immediately how archaic the features are in that skull, but it's only 200 years old. So that's a, that's a really interesting one. And then even more interesting and very hard to get information on are the Wimura skulls. There's a handful of them. I think there's three or four different skulls. And that morphology, if that's not fake, which it may be, and if it's not a pathology, which it could be, if it's legit, that's a complete game changer because that, that's the strangest looking hominid I've ever seen. If, if it's real and if it's a healthy individual that represents an entire population, well, it's definitely an animal, but it's also definitely primate. It's hominid, but it's not sapiens. It's nowhere near sapiens. It's, I mean, there's no forehead. Look at the size of its eyes. And that jaw, these cheekbones, suggest a very, very large jaw. So it kind of gives it a really like diminutive feel to it without the mandible. But if you had a jaw on it, it would likely come right down here. It'd really bulk out that face, but we just don't know. But all this to suggest that I don't think it's case closed in Australia. I don't think we know exactly what's going on here. I think there's room for a lot of more interesting things to have had occurred. And of course, at the divide of Pleistocene and the Holocene around 11,500 BC, the sea levels rose 70 odd metres and inundated the whole coastline. I'm going to do another talk down the track going into more detail on the phenomenon known as the Yowie. Again, it's one of these big, hairy, human-like creatures that has been reportedly roaming around the Australian wilderness for a very, very long time both little guys and big guys, and very, very chic-looking middle-sized guys enjoying a refreshing cup of tea or perhaps coffee. So I was confusing myself when I was coming up with this presentation. I didn't even know what I was trying to get across. Like, there's this germ of, like, what is it, Byron? What's the real thing? You know those movies where four-fifths toward the end of the film and you still don't know what's going on and the director has to spoon-feed you the plot by like some character just kind of blurting it all out and it's terrible, I hate that. That's what I've done. <laughs> but these are the points I was trying to get home. I'm not sure if I did it successfully. So the Eastern Hemisphere, indeed much of the planet, has been home to numerous different hominid species across prodigious time. A number of those species are now suspected of having persisted further in time than previously thought. We know at least two non-sapiens hominids, that's the little guys, Homo floresiensis and Homo luzonensis, that successfully crossed the Wallace line into Sahulian territory. And there's genetic evidence to suggest the Denisovans may have also. Four, human skeletal remains demonstrating archaic features have been found on the Australian mainland at least one example of very recent origin. Five, the earliest date for the occupation of Sahul by indigenous Homo sapiens continues to be pushed back now potentially to 80,000 years or 120,000 years as we saw. Tens of thousands of square kilometres of the most favourable biomes on the Australian coastline have been submerged since the end of the last ice stage 
inundating all potential evidence of human occupation. Sightings of hairy human-like creatures have been reported in their thousands within not just Indigenous law, but during colonial era and continuing through to contemporary times. I'll add as well, the fact that Australia had its coastline inundated is of particular note in Australia. Like I mentioned before, if sea level rises here, it rises there, everywhere, it's the same, right? So everywhere around the world, there was a 70 odd metre rise in sea level over at least a couple of hundred years. It's argued how swiftly it all happened. Hundreds of thousands of years ago, Australia was actually very different, ecologically speaking. It was far moister and greener. Without going too much into it, it's actually another big interest of mine was the paleobotany and ecology of the Australian continent. It looked really, really different. Lush green forests dominated by the Oricoria genus and lots of palms and cycads and, and whatnot looked very different. Animals were completely different. All of the Australian megafauna it were intact then. But by about 50,000 years ago, it looked or at least was transitioning into what we have now, which was a very, very dry continent. And the internal area, internal Australia, was desert by about 50,000 years ago, give or take. So like today, the best real estate in Australia was around the edges. That's different from other places. It's certainly different from Southeast Asia, East Asia, Europe, Africa, the Americas. There are deserts, but the entire internal space of these other continents is not desert. There are dry patches, but not the vast majority of the guts of a whole continent. So at the time of the sea levels rising, there would have been like today a magnification, a focusing of human settlement around the edges. So I, I think we lost way more evidence for God knows whatever was going on here than we appreciate. Well, when I'm emperor, I will be, I will be funding a lot of dives off the coast. And there are particular spots around Australia where you can follow where the old rivers meandered out into the, the coastal plain and dropping off into what is now the uh, continental shelf. And I dare say that along those rivers, there would be a lot of very interesting human settlements. And that's the end of my talk. Thank you very much. Yeah, oh, please. It's the best Can part. Any discussion about the visitation or intrusion of visitors from other states be? Uh, yeah, well, there's lots of that. That could be a whole different PowerPoint presentation. But yeah, and like in Australian Indigenous law, and I don't claim to be a full bottle on it, and I certainly don't want to speak for for those, those peoples. But there are a lot of myth and law, a lot within their law that could be interpreted that way, especially the, um, the story of the, the seven sisters, the Pleiades, which is not quite, you know, ubiquitous, but actually, you know, it's one of those myths. You've got the hairy men, the flood, and the seeding of human culture from elsewhere, namely the Pleiades or the Sirius star system maybe the Orions, but usually Pleiades, which is uh, odd that it's shared around so many places that are completely removed from one another. You're looking at the Genesis story of all these different hominids. Um, would we have multiple Genesis stories? Like, of course, the Bible tells us about Jehovah creating you know, the human race. Could there have been multiple human races created which are different from each other? Yeah, I, 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 my mind has gone to all sorts of strange places with this, but uh, yeah, but, and as to why only one species remains, I find is very strange, even though we are indeed something of a hybrid ourselves or an intergressed species, but that's very unusual. In my first talk on this subject, I pointed out how unusual that is, like it's really... The, it's the exception that you have one species as a lone representative of its genus. 
it does occur, there are other places, but you look at like the most, in terms of, we have a great deal of similarities to the wolf in terms of the way we are social and the way we hunt and the type of environments we like to occupy, which is why we made such good team mates with them, right? But you look at like the Canis, the Canidiae family. I mean, there's not just the grey wolf, there's countless subspecies of the grey wolf, proper subspecies. Humans don't have subspecies. We only have like ethnic divides. There's a whole different terminology I can't remember. But there's also, you know, Canis familiaris, there's Canis dingo, there's countless representatives of the Canis genus, but then there's also like the Lycon genus, the African wild dogs, you've got the Vulpes genus, all the foxes. Virtually every other type or clade within ecology has that pattern. They're hybridizing events and crossbreeding back and forth. But I mean, once you get, once you are removed back to the genus level, you know, like you'll never cross successfully cross a fox with a wolf, right? So there are degrees where you just can't cross back over. But yeah, I've I've done a fair bit of looking into that. So there's this the cranial deformation practice from a number of different places around the world. I mean, Eastern Europe, it was big. There's evidence in Australia, North Africa, and of course, South America, the most famous, the Paracas skulls in particular. So it's, easy to, it's quite easy to tell when a skull has been deformed by planking and whatnot. They take the child's head and they bind it with you know, whatnot, and it has no option but to, to grow backwards. Now. What, in that case, what you've got is an otherwise completely normal human skull and just the shape has changed. Just the shape, not the volume, not, not the finer morphological aspects to it. And that's e quite easily recognised. But then you've got this other thing that's going on where there are these skulls that are, yes, different shape, they're longer, but they're also bigger in volume by about 25%. The sutures in the skull are completely different, like very different. You know, like they've got a whole less, whole one less plate. I forget the name of the, those plates in the skull. And the sinuses are in a different place. The facial morphology is quite different. The foramen magnum, which is the big cavity that the spine goes up into, is in a different position. Again, I'm not an anthropologist or a paleoanthropologist, but from the Little I know, all of those differences and characteristics are more than enough to suggest that that is not Homo sapiens. That could be, that's describing something that's morphologically different enough to easily be shifted into at least a different species category, Homo, whatever you want to throw at it. And as to why that's not being, you know, officially recognised and studied and there's been papers on it left, right and centre and wow, what an incredible thing. I have no idea. It's one of those infuriating, pinch me, am I dreaming kind of aspects of these kind of studies. It's like when something is so obviously... It, no. And the, the DNA, I believe, there was a bloke who's gone out of his way to, to actually take this, you know, run with this study and he's done the DNA study on it and yada, yada, yada. The haplogroups that are associated with these skulls are not South American. They're, they're Caucasus region. The Black Sea, I believe, is where their the closest living population are from. And their hair is red, like properly red, not dyed red, not aged from the mummification process, it's red hair. So very strange. I mean, that's, that's a really strange one. The redheads in New Zealand, yeah. The, uh, the Watakai, Watakai. I think that's how it's pronounced, yeah. Okay. Oh, right, yeah, okay. Yes, well, Australia is famously infertile. And as soon as you cross the line, you're in volcanic soil country. I mean... The, it, it's a stark difference. You've got Australia, which is largely arid and extremely um, geriatric soils with very little mineral content and carbon level in them. And then you go 
jump the fence and you've got these rich volcanic soils and you know 400 millimeters a year rainfall and warm subtropical environments so it's a completely different place there is a trend of animals trapped on islands like the mammoths of malta and those last mammoths the last mammoths to ever live were on an island off the yukon i think in canada or alaska and they were pygmy just because they were on islands. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've tried really hard to find that, and I can't, I can't get my finger on it, right? Because there are like modern examples of giganticism. Right. There's a few different like hormonal pathologies and whatnot that create, you know, you, we've seen the photos. It seemed to be quite a trend back in the late 1800s for some reason that you'd have these individuals like that. But that is very much a pathology, we're told at least, and often they have a you know, shortened life span, etc. Then you've got rumours of like certain, like just the odd tooth and cranium and whatnot from certain finds in Indo and Africa, and they're called Meganthropus, big human, right? But then they're disputed within the record. But then you've got these, all these stories of giants and the Smithsonian covering up these giant skeletons from the US. I mean, there's I've read hundreds of old yellowing photocopied reports from the bloody Kentucky Journal, 1880, and we've all just stumbled across another nine-foot skeleton Right, and there's these like these quotes from Abraham Lincoln when he was cutting the ribbon at the Niagara Falls Center, saying, "As we look out across this fair land, like the just as that race of giants that lived here before us did, there's all this like, what's the word, circumstantial, anecdotal evidence." But again, like, <laughs> I don't know. Well, I don't know what to make of it. I mean, but all you need is one of them to be true. And I've read hundreds of, unless there's someone out there, if there's a thousand monkeys at a thousand typewriters just manufacturing forgeries about giants in America, maybe, I don't know, that's maybe how people get their kicks. But if only one of them needs to be true, it's the same as all these reports about the hairy men, Sasquatch, Yowie, whatever, Yeti running around. Hundreds and hundreds, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of reports from however many hundreds of years ago in prodigious traditional law through to today. You only need one of them to be true. But I try to remain as unbiased as I can be in any way. Okay. You know, you could join the TS, get onto the executive committee, yeah. become president, right, and use that as a stepping stone to your emperorship. <laughs> All right. Where do I sign? Just join up. See that lady over there. Just a big yeah. smile. I carry a big stick. Let's thank Byron for his call. Thank you.
through.